Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends is trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Technology is the lifeblood of this stock market. And right now, in a totally new paradigm, one that must be put in context, it doesn't matter what your technology does. It only matters who uses it. Who's the customer? That's what I keep thinking after today. I've got another sedate session. Dow slipped two points. That's to be inched up 0.08%. NASDAQ declined 0.04%. I need a microscope here. We keep learning this same lesson about technology over and over and over again in this elongated earnings season. And it's pretty jarring because normally we care about what technologies, what it actually does. If it's helpful, if it increases speed or accuracy or power or productivity, well, it tends to be a success. Bye, bye, bye. If it's clunky and a big waste and it tends to uh, be dead on arrival, sell, sell, sell. Not these days, though. These days, Wall Street only cares about who your customers are. Good, bad, as long as you've got the right end markets, your stock is going to be rewarded. So let's start with two relatively big household names. Let's use Roku, okay, and Cisco. Roku sells to the consumer, sells to you. Their technology helps you stream videos directly to your TV. Cisco's a networking company, a colossus that sells to the what known is known as the enterprise, giant complex companies that need to connect to the web in all its iterations. Now, Roku stock, I mean, it has been just a consummate horse. Just an amazing runner. Up in an astronomical 385% for the year. You heard me, 385%. Why? Because every time you hear about a new video package, you need to think of Roku. Because its technology is the easiest way to connect. Their devices are neutral. They work with any platform. And they're also installing their tech directly into new TVs. So when Disney has the single most successful launch for a streaming service in history, you buy Roku. In fact, if you go to Roku's website today, the welcome page is Stream Disney Plus on your Roku device. It's the leading way to watch all these services. A classic arms dealer that allows the consumer to get every channel she wants. When you consider it that way, in that light, it's easy to see why the stock's had such an epic run and why it might have even more upside. No wonder it rallied more than 4% today on the heels of that big Disney launch. But now let's go to the other extreme. Cisco. You don't hire Cisco to install Sonos in your home. You hire them when you want to connect your far-flung enterprise to the web and guard it with the best security there is. Now, when the company reported last night, management gave downbeat guidance. So downbeat that the stock got clobbered, uh, plummeted 7% today. Listen to what the straight-shooting CEO, Chuck Robbins, he can't help himself, he's that straight-a-shooter, had to say about the world in his conference call. Over the last year, 
Many of you have heard me talk about the resilience of the global macro environment. However, on our last earnings call, we indicated that we had begun to see some weakness. He goes on to say that weakness continued throughout Q1 and was more broad-based. While the main challenges continue to be the service provider in emerging markets, this quarter we also saw relative weakness in enterprise and commercial. Hmm, enterprise and commercial. Well, that's pretty much everything. Cisco's total production orders were actually down 4%. Both the Americas and the Europe, Middle East, Africa region down 3%. Asia, Pacific, China, Japan are 5%. Emerging markets got hammered down 13%. Those are staggering declines for this great company. Really, for any company, for that matter. What's driving this downturn? Take a listen. Business confidence, CEO confidence. Uh, has been waning, and it's really been waning because of all the uncertainty, whether it's the U.S.-China trade situation, the Hong Kong situation, Brexit, what's going on in Washington. I mean, there's just there's a lot of uncertainty. So all we're saying is that we aren't modeling any change in the momentum, but certainly if we get a resolution in U.S.-China, even an interim deal, that could potentially help. Well, there you go. I mean, no wonder the stock got obliterated today. Now, there's real value here if you can wait, but Wait, you must get those gains now. How about the semiconductors? Once again, it's all about end markets. When you look at the incredibly consumer-oriented chip maker like AMD, its stock's been soaring. You know I'm a big fan of AMD's CEO, Lisa Su. When she reported that last quarter, the stock surged to the low 30s, went to the low 30s, and then boom, all the way up to 38. Why? Red hot PC and gaming market, a robust data center for them. And that's why I think you can keep screaming higher. I mean, the stock hit 38 today. On the other hand, Texas Instruments has a business that's heavily skewed toward the enterprise, especially the Internet of Things autos. Something uh, that, like, it just can't outperform on a day like today. Too much weakness in the industrial economy. For the longest time, this market loved enterprise-oriented tech stocks. Investors believed they could keep working even in a tougher economy because their customers needed to upgrade in order to stay competitive. That is no longer the case. Whether it is some of the things that Chuck mentioned in Brexit, or Hong Kong, China, worldwide slowdown, these stocks, what they've done, they've effectively turned into market punching bags. Right now, the whole tech sector feels fraught because of the widely varying confidence of the customer. Next week is Dreamforce. It's the Salesforce hosted extravaganza. The showcases the best of the software as a service industry, as well as some well-known luminaries. I don't know, you know, ex-president, CEO of the largest company in the world. You get the picture. Now, you know I'm a huge believer in the cloud. Big companies use Salesforce to improve service and build trust with their customers. So they keep hiring Salesforce in the event of a, slow, a worldwide slowdown. Or do they? Same goes for ServiceNow, Adobe, Workday. These cloud plays actually save their customers money through digitization, which is why I think they'll hold up just fine. That's why I think Salesforce is still a buy, even though it's running into Dreamforce. But you know what? Now I'm worried. I am a little worried about Workday. That last quarter, they had trouble closing deals. Same, same rhetoric I heard on the Cisco call. It's not good. So then you've got what I call the hybrids. HP Inc. is under assault by Carl Icahn. He wants them to merge with Xerox. We all know HP is a big consumer brand, but it's got some gigantic corporate orders. And those orders can easily be cut back. You can just delay them. Uh, uh, That's what we saw with Cisco. If it weren't for the takeover talk, I think the stock would be dramatically lower. Micron's a bit of a hybrid, too. When we spoke to CEO Sanjay Marotra, he said a lot of good things about demand for storage and consumer products. His chips are the backbones of all sorts of devices, cameras, phones, that kind of thing. But Micron also has large enterprise orders, so it's tough. That's why the stock's in no man's land. Finally, you have Apple, which is unique. 
While Apple is some enterprise work, it's really a classic consumer product play in an environment where the consumer is king. And that's why Apple stock has been able to roar. Uh, it's up 66% for the year. This is strictly a know-your-customers market. The bottom line, until we deal with this macro uncertainty, stocks like Cisco and its colleagues could be stuck in neutral at best or have some more down days or weeks at worst. The market wants nothing to do with tech companies that serve the enterprise. Oh, but does it love the consumer? And that is the end of the story. Jeff in Massachusetts. Jeff! Hey, Jim. I'd like to give a shout-out to Stephen and Sarah, my kids, asking you in regards to Canopy Growth Corporation. It's plummeted. I've owned it for a long time. What do you think? Should I hold or sell? That, that was a terrible quarter. I mean, I, I, there's no two. I can't miss words. I mean, it's just a terrible quarter. I, they literally have to hope that the government plows over the, the cannabis crop up in Canada because there's just way too much. Uh, it is just, I think, I don't want to say it's, no, it's terrible. That industry's terrible. It, you know, it, it, the eyes were too big. That's what my mom would have said. Tom in Illinois, please. Tom. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, I- I'd like to know, what do you think about the Fox A shares at this point, now that it's uh, out on its own? Do you think it's a buy here? No, I'd rather have you own Disney. I mean, Disney's going to go much, 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 much higher. Let's 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 not fool around. Uh, I need to go to Alex in New York. Alex. Alex, you're up. Jim, with Arrowhead Pharmaceutical stock reaching a new 52-week high, is it still a buy at these levels? I don't know. We've been saying buy it, buy it, buy it. I'm not going to turn my head on that, man. I think it's just really good. I really like it. Um, And maybe, um, well, you know what? That's really about it. So it's all about the end markets here. With so much global uncertainty present, be prepared to see continued weakness in enterprise-oriented stocks like Cisco and Texas Instruments. And yes, because Warren Buffett sold a small amount of Apple, you're going to see that consumer stock go down a bit. If you sell it because of that, I say don't trade it, okay? Oh, man, money time. All eyes on Viacom as the company reports earnings. What should be your next move now that it's joining forces with CBS? I've got the CEO. Then why Trump may be even more anti-elite than Elizabeth Warren. I'll explain. And cutting-edge drug science is making us healthier, and companies like Biomarin are finally pushing medicine forward, and their stocks are starting to go up. I'm sitting down with the CEO to find out what's ahead. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. Uh, what do we make of the stock of Viacom 
now that it's joining forces again with CBS. This huge media company owns Paramount, Nickelodeon, MTV, BET, and Comedy Central, among a host of other brands. Investors have been calling for a merger with CBS for years. But when CBS actually moved to acquire them in an all-stock deal, Wall Street didn't like the terms, and Viacom's shares have been slammed, down nearly 25% in the last three months. Today, though, the company reported a strong quarter, capping off a year in which their film business returned to profitability. That's Paramount, by the way. And their TV business grew for the first time in six years. Could this be the right way to play the upcoming Viacom-CBS merger. Earlier today, we had a chance to sit down with Bob Backish. He's the president and CEO of Viacom, and he'll be running the combined company. Take a look. All right, Bob, last quarter, where it's just Viacom. Next time we see you, it'll be Viacom-CBS. What does the combination look like? Because that's now more important than what Viacom looks like. Well, look, we just reported our last quarter as an independent company, our fourth fiscal quarter. Uh, really pleased with it. We returned our domestic ad business to growth. We returned our domestic affiliate business to growth. We delivered full-year profitability for Paramount, all things we promised the street at the beginning of the year. So we're thrilled about that. But it is the road ahead that's so exciting. As you point out, we're going to be merging with Viacom, with CBS. So Viacom, CBS, will um, the transaction will close early December. Okay. And then we'll be off to the races. Now, uh, you're in an oddity here. Your company is the Second lowest P.E. price earnings ratio in the S&P 500. Only Macy's is less. Uh, I look at all the things that you've done in the turnaround. What is Wall Street or a lot of our regular Main Street viewers missing? I think there was uncertainty about the transaction. Again, now we're going to close in early December. There is some speculation about how we're going to operate. Are we going to operate as a combined company? I can tell you the road ahead, Jim, is tremendously exciting. We're deep into integration planning. We've already announced, for example, we're going to have one domestic ad sales force here. We're going to have one distribution arm. We're going to have one global product licensing organization. Just those three things on the commercial basis, bringing all our product together. In the U.S., we're 22% of primetime viewing, 20% of total day. Um, that is an extraordinary place to be. And bringing that to the marketplace in a single point of contact positions us to do great things. We are now in a world where people are more excited about the unbundle of yesterday Disney, uh, the idea of how much uh, Netflix has to spend. And those are the standalones that the young people like and that your model is the old model and it won't work. I look at it as that you have a different model, not the old model, correct? Absolutely. And we talked about it on our call today. We've been executing as Viacom on a strategy where we're serving the widest accessible market. Now, on the one hand, are we in the bundle business, big bundle, small bundle? Yes, absolutely. The majority, significant majority of homes in the U.S. still get television that way. So, of course, we're feeding that. At the same time, we're making original product through our studio business for our for the streaming clients. That's a great business for us. We announced a couple deals recently, including yesterday, another deal with Netflix. Great piece of business. We're also in the streaming business on an owned and operated basis, both through our uh, Pluto TV product at Viacom, which is the number one free streaming television product in the country. We just announced today 20 million monthly active users, up from 12 million in January. So that's 70% growth calendar year to date. Monetizing. On fire. Monetizing. 
So usage is growing even okay. faster than users, and monetization is already in the hundreds of millions. So that thing is a rocket. So we're playing all segments, and I think that's what makes us different. That gives us a better, uh, more predictable path to growth and a better ability to manage. So the naysayers who say, listen, Jim, you're too bullish down here because they have to spend five, six, seven, eight billion to compete with a Netflix, to compete with a Disney. That is not necessarily an accurate depiction of what will have to happen. Look, the naysayers said we couldn't return our domestic ad sales business to growth. They were wrong. We proved that today for the second consecutive quarter and for the full year. They said we couldn't return our domestic affiliate business to growth. They were wrong. They said we couldn't return Paramount to profitability. We improved profitability at $500 million in three years. Um, so they say we can't compete in streaming. They're absolutely wrong. We're bringing a different approach to the marketplace, one that combines free and pay. We're the leader today in free. We already have, particularly on a Viacom CBS mm-hmm. basis, a nice bouquet of pay products. We'll use those on an integrated basis, and you'll see us prosper in that space as well. Now, a lot of people might say they're not well-funded versus Google, uh, versus Facebook, versus Amazon. One of those guys is going to wake up and say, I want to write a check to the NFL, and I am going to take away the principal blue-chip asset that you have. Why won't that happen? Well, first of all, we're an investment-grade company. Um, so we have a strong balance sheet. We're even stronger investment grade as a combination. But to your question on the NFL, CBS has a long-standing partnership with the NFL, and they get some very material value from CBS. One, broadcast carriage. The NFL is a mass market brand in the United States. It needs mass market reach, and broadcast television continues to be that. So that's valuable to them. Second thing the NFL gets is, and people don't talk about this, very high-quality production. CBS doesn't produce one game a week for the NFL. They produce multiple games. This is live television, multiple cameras, very complicated production. It's how the U.S., and in some cases the world, see the NFL product. Very important to them, not easy to do. Now, enter Viacom, two other real sources of value, and I've spoken with the league about this. One is young audiences. Whether it's our linear networks or our on-demand product like Pluto, we bring young audiences to, the, to media, and that's important because they, too, are running that brand for a long time. They need to bring younger uh, right. consumers in. And lastly, international. Also, as part of a growth strategy, people want to develop their businesses outside of the U.S. You see the NFL doing that. Mm-hmm. Viacom has one of the definitive operating footprints, ex-U.S. in media. That includes broadcast assets in the U.K., in Latin America, and we serve 170 countries uh, overall. So we bring four very material things to the table, um, and that comes on the back of a long-standing, highly productive partnership. So I feel good going into that. Some things mystify people. South Park, unbelievable. Next week... You're leasing it away. Why lease a gem? Look, the um, content market is very frothy. Let's talk about how we think about whether we use IP for our own platforms or third party. We really think about three things. One is we look at the financials and how does doing a deal impact our ability to deliver our overall financial plan. Second thing is we look at strategy. How does using a piece of IP either on an owned and operated platform drive the growth of that platform or potentially how does it drive the growth of other businesses like consumer products, like recreation, like um, downstream feature film activities. And third thing we think about is partnership. You know, how does a decision on a piece of IP impact a broader partnership either on the creative side or on the distribution side? opportunistic. So we look at the South Park deal. It was an opportunity to ring the register in this frothy market. We're very happy with the deal. 
Um, it does uh, ensure that we have broad reach uh, for mm-hmm. the franchise, which we think has other benefits. And um, both uh, AT&T is a big partner of ours, yeah. and the creators are big partners of ours. We have multifaceted relationships. We put it all together. We love the South Park deal. All right, one last question, Bob. You, uh, I have the privilege to meet Shia Redstone, a uh, legendary figure. Uh, I went out to dinner with her. Thank you so much. We all went out. And she seemed to be very motivated and cannot be happy with a company that sells at five times earnings, a great growth company. What can an individual do in terms of just individual firepower, individual interest, as she can to say, you know what, this is, I'm drawing a line in the sand? Look, um, management, myself, we're not happy with the valuation of Viacom. Um, Shari also is focused on growing shareholder value. We believe the combination of these two great companies and our execution path going forward will really demonstrate the value. Uh, you know, there are material synergies here on the cost side and, more importantly, on the revenue side. And it's the revenue side that's the reason you ultimately do the deal. We see ad revenue upside. We see distribution upside. We see upside in global product licensing. We'll be one of the biggest dealers on the planet in a world where there's increasing demand for content and some of our competitors are pulling content off the market. And finally, we see upside in the streaming side through this combination of free and pay. I see that. Shari sees that. We're tremendously excited. We believe the marketplace will see that. And it, this is an incredible opportunity today to get involved with a super high-quality company. Well, people who know and follow me in Action Alerts know that I couldn't agree more. I don't understand the valuation after listening to you. I still don't understand it, except for to decide that the people who are selling are wrong. That's Bob Backus. He's the president and CEO of Viacom. I hope you now understand why I said it was the most undervalued stock that I follow. And with 499 out of 500, I can't believe it because it's wrong. Man, money's back in the break. You can't understand the trade war unless you get your head around the political situation here in the U.S. Now, this is a jam for me. I hate talking politics. I'd much prefer to focus on individual companies. You know that. Unfortunately, the trade war matters to the market. So, sigh. Stuff's impossible to ignore. When it comes to trade and a lot of other issues, the key political divide in this country is not between the Republicans and the Democrats. Wrong read. There's a whole other debate happening in both parties right now. The populists versus the technocrats. On the Democratic side, this fight is happening out in the open. You've got Senator Warren representing the populist wing of the party and Joe Biden standing for the more technocratic wing. Biden thinks the system works fine for the most part. Maybe it needs a few tweaks, but that's it. Warren's out here picking fights with billionaires because she thinks big business has gotten too powerful and some people just too rich versus the tens of millions of others in the country. From the Chinese perspective, they must be praying for a Biden victory because he wants to end the trade war. On the Republican side, we're seeing the same populist versus technocrats debate, only it's happening inside the White House. The president has advisors from both sides, which can make things really confusing. The other day, President Trump gave a speech at the Economic Club of New York, Technocrat Central, and we saw a flash of electric elite criticism that highlighted that fault line in his own administration. He talked about how China's been taking advantage of us with its predatory trade policies for, for ages. That's just flat. That, that's flat true, okay? Empirical true. Nothing fake. But because the president knows how to read a room and that audience doesn't love the trade war, he started praising the Chinese for playing us brilliantly, as he did when he first told the Chinese that the order is finally changing. Instead, Trump said the real villains here are his predecessors, both Republicans and Democrats, who effectively sold out American workers 
in exchange for China partially opening its markets to big business. I emphasize partially. And that's why these trade talks are so hard to gain. We don't know if the president will side with the free trading technocrats in his own administration, namely Steve Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow, the Treasury Secretary and President's Chief Economic Advisor, or if he'll side with the populace led by trade advisor Peter Navarro with Robert Lighthizer, the chief negotiator, seemingly a fellow traveler. We don't know because the president's using the doves as carrots and the hawks as sticks. Increasingly, I think he sides with the hawks because the Chinese keep misreading the situation. They're confusing resolve and hard bargaining their style, with ideological cold warfare, the style of the populace. By the way, in both parties. Hey, for a moment, let's bag the ornithology for a second. Mnuchin and Kudlow represent the old-style technocrats. They believe in free trade, and they believe in the, the people who run our institutions, people like Henry Kissinger or Stephen Schwartzman or Goldman Sachs alum Henry Paulson, who also happens to be the former Treasury Secretary, and same with John Thornton. See, these men stand for open China. They went free and fair trade. Happy warrior. The populists don't buy that line of thinking for one second. They think the technocrats are only doing what's good for big business, for the wealthy, the elites, not necessarily for what's good for America. Let's take it one step further. The populists in the Trump administration, they don't want more trade. They want China to make seven major concessions. Navarro calls them the seven deadly sins. No more stealing of our intellectual property. No more forced technology transfers. Stop dumping into our darn markets, putting our companies out of business. No more subsidized state-owned enterprises. No more currency manipulation, no more computer hacking, and perhaps in some ways the most important, no more illegal fentanyl exports that are killing, killing our people. What's so extraordinary is that if you just throw in punishment for global warming, I believe that the populist advisors in the White House have more in common with Elizabeth Warren's rhetoric than with the free traders in their own administration. I think she might end up being even tougher on China than Trump. So who wins in this White House, the free trade contingent or the populist? Unless China stops trying to negotiate a good price (laughs) and instead just starts buying, buying things like grains and planes, you name it. then I'm betting the populace winning. The president, I think, maybe gets fed up. He's going to raise tariffs for everything to 30 percent in a month's time. The Chinese keep making the same mistake. They think this is about the balance of trade. Oh, maybe it was at one point. When in reality, it's about a whole lot more than that now. How can they get a deal? I think they need to start buying American goods like tomorrow to show Trump that the free traders have a point and their strategy can still work. He needs to show the free traders that they can have hope. Otherwise, the hardliners win. The trade war keeps dragging on. And depending on who wins and how what happens in the election, what plays out, it could go on for years. If I were the Chinese, I'd rather deal with Trump now than Trump or war later. Sure, we hear the Chinese are always playing the long game. I got some bad news for them. Judging from the landscape, oh, they're playing the long game. The long game. Paul in Illinois. Paul. Hey, Jim. Um, I bought into CrowdStrike in the mid-70s and have since averaged it down, but I'm still in the red. Yeah. I know they were mentioned yesterday during the hearing that gave us stock a 10% bump. It's young. It's expensive. It's in the political, political crosshairs. And I know the lockup is ending up soon. Should I buy some more? Well, look, the problem with CrowdStrike is this has become a very crowded area. Uh, CyberArk and Palo Alto are the two that are still working. Uh, and I say working, meaning that they're not overwhelmed by uh, sellers everywhere. So I cannot endure CrowdStrike's a really good company, but it doesn't matter. Right now, there are too many CrowdStrikes out there. Right, China needs to start buying American goods to appease the Trump administration's free trade thinkers who, in turn, will urge Trump that an open China is the way. 
If China doesn't, then I think the populace may come out on top, and that could mean tariff increases in the near future because the Chinese are playing the long, wrong game. Much more mad money here. I'm taking a look inside the biotech ticker. What can Biomarin tell us right now about the future for these stocks and the government? I'm talking to the CEO after the company's R&D day. Then the average cost of a successful fertility treatment can be about $70,000. Can I mind one player working to help expand and improve access to fertility treatments? And all you call is rapid fire in today's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Spending most of the year in critical condition, the biotech sector suddenly started showing some signs of life over the past six weeks. This whole group is in the doghouse because investors were terrified by all those proposals coming out of the Democratic primary, most of which would make it harder for the drug industry to make money. But in recent weeks, we started feeling that maybe those fears are, in, are behind us. I don't know. But the group's been able to rally. Look at Biomarin Pharmaceutical. It's a company that makes orphan drugs. That's super expensive treatments for rare conditions that affect fairly small numbers of people but wouldn't be treated otherwise. For months, Biomarin stock got hammered, falling from about $100 in fact in February down to 63 That's low as last month. Since then, the stock's come roaring back, climbing to 75 as of today. Some of that's because the biotechs feel less toxic. Some of it's because Biomarin reported a good quarter three weeks ago. Earlier today, Biomarin held its R&D event, which is much to look forward to. They gave us a positive update on one of their lead drug candidates, a phase two treatment for, here we go, i got to try to get these right, achondroplasia, which is the most common cause of dwarfism in humans. So can this stock keep rebounding? Let's check in with J.J. Bianamese, the chairman and CEO of Biomarin, get a better sense of how his company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Bianamese, welcome back to Bad Money. Okay, Thank you. you. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you. JJ, I'm hearing some staggeringly positive uh, gains in height from this drug. Uh, Not really conceivable even just a few years ago. So tell us about that because it could be really. So again, we uh, start RD Day today in New York. We gave this update uh, on uh, now four and a half years uh, of treatments of those patients. And we were able to show that they gain uh, over those four and a half years of treatment nine centimeters in growth, which is pretty substantial for those patients because they are. Uh, you know, most patients with this condition, uh, their final adult height is around four uh, feet for, right. for males. Uh, there are five standard deviations from patients with average height. So this is pretty significant. Although, and although we're using height or gross velocity as an endpoint, this is uh, going to very likely substantially improve their quality of life because they have all sorts of, you know, uh, morbidity associated right. with their their stature and spinal cord compressions, all sorts of issues that we hope to be able to, to improve. Now, you also uh, gave us a picture of a drug called Valrox. Or, yes. Yeah. And that was something that you had spoken to us, uh, I don't know, maybe about a year and a half ago. And yes. it sounds like the news is good. So we made great progress there, and uh, we are uh, very confident that we will be uh, submitting uh, for filing for approval in the U.S. and in Europe before the end of this year, so in the next and the results are good. Well, we, so we had phase two data where we showed that the drug uh, last May was working for at least three years in terms of controlling bleeding episodes. Uh, and we had, uh, you know, good uh, early phase three data. So we're filing with a uh, uh, preliminary filing with just a subset of the phase three patients. Uh, right. But based on our interaction with the regulatory authorities, we should be able 
to get approval for the drug. Now, the severe uh, hemophilia A, is that, hemophilia that's a, a bigger drug than typical for biomarkers. Yes, that's about 125,000 patients in the world, so that's bigger than that's what big. we've done. Yeah. Now, so. the reason I, I, I think this is so important is because, meanwhile, the seven approved products targeted to deliver $2 billion in revenue, you got the most, maybe the most stable of, of, of just a continual roadmap of where you're going. So these could be big kickers for you. No, you're right. So that's why we, I announced this morning at the R&D day that actually, we, based on recent data, we are more and more confident on the durability of effect of both Vazoritide for achondroplasia and Valrox for gene therapy for hemophilia A. And consequently, we said we are you know, more and more confident about reaching $2 billion in revenues next year. Right. And for the first time, and you probably didn't see that, we announced that we will be very likely gap profitable. Right. For the first no, time you, I was, next you year. talked a lot about uh, cost control. Okay. I've never really cared about that for you, but I know yeah. the market's changed. Yes. And they want you to do that. I wanted the growth, but yes. you've d- addressed these issues that they want. Exactly. And specifically now, uh, you know, with the anticipated approval of Varox and Bazaritai, we should see a significant acceleration of the top line, you know, beyond right. $2 billion. Um, and uh, because we've been growing about 15% per year over the past, you know, three to four years, we should see an inflection points growing even faster beyond $2 billion. And then obviously, the, then we should see the profitability of the company uh, improve substantially again, assuming well, the two patients. I think that's driven because you know, I was looking at the stock since 2013, it's up about 8%. But this is what's so weird for me. Revenues in 2013, $549 million. Mm. Now you're talking about $2 billion. The market does not know how to value your company. How could a company? How could you have four times the revenues and be the stock the same price? And I think the answer is is either they're looking for profitability or they're worried about a change in how much people are compensated for developing amazing drugs. I mean, it's a it's a combination of both, and it's also probably because four years ago. You know, the stock was probably a little ahead of itself. Right. Well, Uh, and and now you know this this pendulum swings one way or the other. Uh, But I would say. Uh, the good news is that, you know, our products have a very long life cycle. We have no, those, the six products we have on the market in the U.S. have no competition. They are the only product approval for the indication that they treat. Uh, so, so we have, you know, sustainability of our revenues that's pretty important here. And despite all the headlines, you know, our pricing in the U.S. has not been affected by all the, the headlines about pricing so far. Uh, and also compared to many other big pharma companies, our price outside the U.S., uh, actually pretty similar to the price we're charging. Oh, the US so no government. one feel okay, because the no. politicians always say, well, if we had been to Spain, if we yes. went to France, we yeah. went to Italy. Yeah. So it is, okay, so there's no comparison that makes your pricing look wrong here. So actually, we looked at the basket of countries that are being used, you know, sure. for pricing comparisons. And, and if we look at the price on average that we pay, uh, that we charge in those countries compared to the U.S. government price, mm-hmm. where there are some discounts, it's about the same. Well, you know, look, so. this is... I don't understand the math. I do understand the. I don't understand the science candidly, but I do understand a stock that is inexpensive versus where it has been, yes. and therefore it's a terrific idea. That's JJ Benray, Chairman and CEO of Biomarin. You can. The deck is very clear for those of you who try to say, "Listen, I don't understand this." They have a global leader in rare disease therapies that is really helpful for anyone who wants to know more. And you should know more before you buy the stock. Their money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light of the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate down the light of the light with Robert Illinois. Robert! Hey, thanks for taking my call, Jim. Two things. 
first first thing, thank you for recommending Boeing to me about eight years ago. I bought the stock, still have it today, and I've done quite well. So hold on, hold on to it. Things will get better there. What else? Well, I need some help on LCI. I really, really like this stock. Really? Tell me I'm not wrong. I don't like the specialty pharma sector. I mean, we've got so many good pharmaceutical companies. I'm liking Novartis. I know it's got the black eye from that one test, that one drug, the SMA drug, but I think Novartis is a better bet. Let's go to Charlie in Florida. Charlie. Charlie? Big Booyah from the Sunshine State. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Kids got horse sense. What's up? This is my my eight years old. He loves your show. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you. First, I want to thank you for your help. Quite welcome. Uh, my stock has a great run lately, but going forward, need your thoughts on CVS. Uh, I just gave a talk to the uh, ActionAlertsPlus.com club yesterday. I said, "Look, CVS is still headed higher. I think you can do. I think it does more than seven dollars. Give it a twelve multiple. You see where that thing's going. So I want you to buy it. Let's go to Gerard in New Jersey. Gerard. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I need a. We need buy, sell, or hold. I have 300 shares at 108 of Procter. Which was it? Procter? Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble's a great American company with a terrific buyback and unbelievable management by David Taylor, I say. Ah. Um, whoa, we're going to go to KT in Massachusetts. KT! Thank you, Jimmy, for your hard work. No I grew up about a mile from your old stomping grounds, Suffolk Downs. Oh, my, Suffolk Downs. That's where I learned to handicap. And loved yeah, make a, it. you make a living down there? Yeah, we well, you know, I had cousins in Lynn. It was fun. The whole thing was good. You know, they take the blue one. What's yeah. up? I'm interested. Uh, I'm a little concerned about IDEX Labs. They have a new CEO. Right. They missed earnings. Right. The stock's gone from 295 to 257 what do you um, think? I think, look, I like the long-term story there, but you're right. They have a new CEO, and I do not know him. And I hope that, I wish Mr. Ayers the, the best of luck, John Ayers. Uh, but I don't know the new CEO, so I'm kind of reserving judgment for now. Uh, and I totally understand how you feel. I feel the same way. Um, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Go, Bob in New Jersey asked me a question about a company called Progeny, and that's P-G-N-Y. You do want to write this down, believe me, uh, for the symbol. It's a company that came public near the end of October in a surprisingly well-received deal. I told him I needed to do more homework because I had missed this one entirely. Progeny launched at a point when we'd pretty much had given up on the IPO market here. I mean, there have been too many busted deals. I th- didn't think there was much appetite for a f- another, another fast-growing startup with little in the way of earnings. But you know what? This is the one that proved us wrong. So that's why tonight we're playing Know Your IPO with Progeny. Because I, I got to tell you, this is one of the more intriguing stories I've heard in ages. 
First of all, what do they do? All right, this company is an outsourced benefit manager that's specifically focused on fertility and family building. If your employer will pay for fertility treatments, odds are they use something like progeny to make sure they're getting the most bang for the buck. And that includes everything from in vitro fertilization to egg freezing. Given that a single cycle of IVF can cost 12 grand, businesses that offer to cover the cost of these fertility treatments, they have a huge incentive to make sure that money's been well spent and been efficiently spent. Now, Project got into the fertility uh, benefits space in 2016. Five businesses, clients. These days, you know that they have more than 80 clients. They provide coverage to roughly 1.4 million employees. And their partners, uh, and they're signing, signing up customers left and right. Oh, get this. This is something I think is really interesting that I, I should have realized. They're on the CNBC Disruptor 50 list. They're number 30. And that is an ultra-innovative list of startups that I have to tell you has produced some really good stocks. Progeny's got spectacular growth. Well, it's, it's well over 100%. And that's in part because fertility is a huge business. In the United States, one in eight couples are impacted by infertility. And as I'm sure many of you know, if you need help having a kid, it is ridiculously expensive. Unfortunately, most insurance simply doesn't cover fertility treatments. Do the health maintenance organizations manage care? Pregnancy is a health risk. They don't want to subsidize it. Stuff like this typically gets covered once Congress makes a law, but there's no federal mandate for infertility coverage. About a third of the states mandate some kind of coverage, and many of those mandates are pretty toothless. So if you're on the market for fertility treatments, you either need to pay out of pocket, which is pretty darn prohibitive, the equivalent of buying a car, or you need to get a job where these treatments are included in your benefits package, and that is where progeny comes in. They manage these benefits packages to ensure you're getting the best, most efficient care. The key here, when you look at the data, their patients tend to get better outcomes. Remember, a lot of this stuff is looking for outcomes. Then people who have traditional insurance coverage. In other words, Progeny just works better than the competition, so companies want to use them. To me, the key here is that more and more companies are offering to pay for fertility treatments for their employees because we have such a tight labor market. You know what, it's kind of the same, and it's, I don't mean to sound crass about this, but it's kind of the same reason to say that businesses are buying a lot of fancy office chairs from Herman Miller. Anything to entice the best workers in an environment where people have a lot of options. And if you're going to offer your workers fertility treatments, you might as well get them through the most effective and best benefits manager. And that means more business for progeny. After looking over this story, I'm not surprised that the stock had a red-hot debut. Progeny came public at 1350 That was a steal right in its own right, but that was because we were down in a depressed view of the market for these things. It started climbing uh, just under 16 by the close of the first day of trading. Not, it didn't spike up big like we don't like. When Bob called in with his question at the end of October, the stock was at $16.21. I wish I'd recommend it then, because over the last couple of weeks, Progeny rallied to 20 bucks and change. Yep, it's up more than 25% since we got the call. Bob, you got horse sense. So now we got to ask ourselves, is Progeny still worth buying up here? Now, i got to tell you, the financials here are very impressive. The company's had eye-popping revenue growth, up 120% in 2017, then 118% in 2018, then 113% in the first half of this year. Normally, when a business is growing this fast, the numbers tend to decelerate rapidly simply due to the law of large numbers. But Progeny keeps doubling its sales and then doubling them again. Meanwhile, the profitability has improved tremendously. You know how many of these the, the, the companies are losing fortunes and they think, well, we'll just grow and then people will like us? No. In 2016, their operating margin, the percentage of their sales that they keep as earnings for interest and taxes, stood at negative 66%. In the first instance of this year, it was positive 5.3%. That means Progeny is now turning a profit, which, I, which I, it helps explain why the stock has performed so well in a market that's become very hostile 
to unprofitable IPOs. Look at Uber. As part of its prospectus, the company also provided guidance for the first nine months of the year. In other words, they gave you a forecast for the third quarter as long as you did the arithmetic of backing out the first half numbers yourself. Prodigy says to expect revenues growth from 117 to 119%. That's a market acceleration versus the previous quarter. It's remarkable. What else? The company's run by a guy named David Schlanger, who served as the CEO of the old WebMD from 2013 through 2016. Oh, and the CFOs from WebMD, too. Under their tenure, that stock word from the 20s to the mid-60s, making shareholders a fortune. So I would say this company has good bloodlines. However, let me give some negatives. There's always caveats, right? First, a project has a couple of large venture capital shareholders, TPG and Kleiner Perkins, both whip smart firms, and they own together 48.5% of the business. So, I mean, that could ultimately be a major overhang if they decide to take profits once the lockup on insider selling expires down the road. I just want to keep this in mind. Maybe they won't, maybe they will. But if you were going to buy a lot, I think you wait for the, you buy some, and then you hope it comes in. Second, we already saw some insider selling as part of the IPO. Both the CEO and the CFO, along with some other executives and directors, sold stock as part of the deal. Uh, I usually don't like to see that, but insiders sell for a variety of reasons. So I wouldn't necessarily consider it a deal breaker. Put it all together, and I think the positives do outweigh the negatives for progeny. The growth is extraordinary, and the profitability means you don't need to worry that this is some sort of fly-by-night organization that doesn't care about making money. As long as the labor market stays strong, of which I think it will. I expect Progeny to put up good numbers. Plus, in the last week, we've gotten a nice pullback here. Now, this is really important. This is a $22 stock on Monday's close. And since then, it's down 7% on nothing. No real news. So I said, wait for dip. And here we go. We got the dip. That's the dip we wanted. So you do have my blessing to start buying Progeny here, albeit only for speculation. This is not Merck or Pfizer. The bottom line, in today's slide, I feel comfortable recommending Progeny right here, right now. This kind of business is inherently speculative. But as long as you take that into account, I think it's worth owning. Hey, Bob in New York. And Bob in New Jersey. You picked a good one. Call back. Give us your next one. And I promise I will come back with an answer sooner than I did this time. Stick with Craig. We're seeing a lot of different reports about what hedge funds have been doing. It's that kind of time again. And I got to pay no attention to it. They may have already changed their positions. They are not here to help you, and you will not be able to count on them. If you take action on any one of these people selling stocks or buying stocks, I have to tell you, I think you're just naive. It's not the way it should work. You do the work. You get comfortable with your own stocks. And if you can't do that, index funds beckon. That's what they're there for. You don't have the time or the inclination. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.